I am co-hosting this event with my friend and colleague Melissa Dalton from the Cooperative Defense Project here, which is part of the International Security uh, Program at CSIS. We're really excited uh, to be having this as a culmination of our work on uh, operationalizing the administration's stabilization assistance review. We've done a couple policy briefs, the latest of which was published today. Uh, that Melissa and I and our colleagues Hijab Shah, who's in the back, and Mackenzie Hammond have co-authored. That's really trying to, to help the administration think about, you have this great document, now what do you do with it? Um, and so this event today is, is within that theme, talking about, okay, what are we gonna do with it? And we're gonna kick off the event with uh, some remarks by Assistant Secretary Denise Natali. And she probably needs no introduction to this crowd, but she is currently the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, otherwise known as CSO. She previously served as the Director of the Center for Strategic Research at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at NDU. And uh, she has also supported so senior leaders of the Joint Staff, Secretary of Defense, Combatant Commands, other US government stakeholders. She has a lot of experience in this space, and I think uh, a lot of people can agree we're, we're happy to have her at CSO during this time that we're operationalizing the SAR. Um, so without further ado, you didn't come here to listen to me talk, so I'm gonna turn it over uh, to Assistant Secretary Denise Natale. Please uh, join me in welcoming her to the stage. Good afternoon. Thank you, Earl, for that kind introduction. I'd also like to thank the Center for Strategic and International Studies for inviting me here today. It's a pleasure to be part of this important discussion on the Stabilization Assistance Review, or the SAR, and the State Department's role in its implementation. I'm very encouraged by the interest and the support from the academic community, the policymaking community, and the practitioner community. So I'd like to start off with the, the so what. What's the big policy question here? Our nation's foreign policy leaders are confronted with a dilemma. How do we balance calls to stabilize fragile states with the concomitant need to efficiently use taxpayers' dollars and realize effective outcomes? State failure clearly threatens U.S. national security interests. The threat comes when instability enables the export of terrorism to the United States homeland and those of our allies, when it incubates transnational organized crime, when it stifles economic growth, allows for the spread of pandemic diseases, or prompts destabilizing migration flows. We have seen the consequences of this with the emergence of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, Al-Qaeda, and other maligned actors. Now, global trends indicate that these threats are not or unlikely to subside in the near future. More than half of the conflicts that have eroded since the early 2000s have returned to violence in seven years. According to the recent United States Institute of Peace Task Force on Fragile States, 99% of all deaths from terrorist attacks over the past 17 years have occurred in countries in conflict. 
In short, we have a vital national security interest in stabilizing conflict-affected areas. Reducing instability will allow us to strengthen our allies, deter our competitors, and foster new trade and investment opportunities. Yet, despite these threats, and here's the, the wrench, the United States simply cannot respond to all crises and conflicts. We simply can't fix failed states. We must resist the temptation to expend more resources as the only viable way to achieve positive results. In the past, the U.S. government approached state failure with a full suite of nation-building activities, often referred to as reconstruction, democracy promotion, and even stabilization. These efforts often measured success by the creativity of resource outputs and or burn rates, how quickly money is spent, not policy outcomes. Our past engagements in conflict-affected areas show that large-scale interventions and uncoordinated programs do not guarantee success. Government oversight has found that throwing billions of dollars at disconnected projects without a coordinated objective and quantifiable metrics of success has yielded results that were often inconclusive and counterproductive. In, in 2018, the Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction concluded that 17 years of U.S. government efforts to stabilize insecure and contested areas of Afghanistan mostly failed. The cost to the American taxpayer was $5 billion. President Trump has reassured America that we will no longer engage in rudderless nation building or the enterprise of large-scale reconstruction. The United States has neither the political will, the domestic support, nor the financial resources to do so. There's no viable reason to continue with previous assistance efforts that have failed to achieve measurable policy goals. Here's where we get to the SAR. The SAR fulfills this administration's vision of linking all of our foreign assistance to U.S. national security priorities and to achievable results. Simply put, the SAR is a lessons learned document from our stabilization interventions over the past decade. It tells us how to do stabilization more effectively. So the SAR is a, is a, is a framework for targeted and disciplined approach to stabilization. It recognizes stabilization as essentially a political endeavor that creates conditions in which locally legitimate actors can peacefully manage conflict and prevent the return to violence. There are five key principles to keep in mind among other important components of the SAR. The first is that stabilization assistance should be tied to realistic political outcomes and that we can measure impact based on clear data-driven metrics. This is part of a larger foreign assistance realignment effort that is occurring at State Department, which seeks to strategically measure progress and determine whether we are realizing our policy objectives. We will continuously ask and assess how are our efforts advancing U.S. foreign policy. Assistance is not open-ended, and it's this metric that we will be using to determine that. There are other key parts 
principles. Secondly, start small and short-term, and then scale up cautiously. Three, assure burden sharing. Four, work by, with, and through local partners, and hold our local partners accountable. And fifth, a modicum of stability must be in place in those areas in which we seek to work with local partners for stabilization. Now, implementing these SAR principles will require that stabilization strategies are tied to achievable political goals. How are we going to do this? First, the SAR creates a very clear division of labor, indicating agency roles and responsibilities to improve performance and reduce duplication. Because stabilization is essentially political, State Department takes the lead, USAID is the lead implementer of non-security assistance, and DOD plays an important supporting role. This means that at State Department, my bureau, the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, or CSO, is working closely with the Office of Foreign Assistance, which we call F, um, to implement the SAR. We are informing policy, strategy, and programs on conflict prevention and stabilization in two ways through rigorous data-driven analysis, and we also deploy our stabilization advisors to the field. Now, there are specific measures that we have taken thus far to ensure implementation of the SAR principles. First, the State Department is making a concerted effort to apply these SAR principles to embassies' integrated country strategies so that the requests for stabilization assistance are in line with the foreign assistance realignment. CSO works closely with other bureaus at the State Department, USAID, and DOD, and has identified priority countries to apply SAR principles, essentially pilot countries, so that we can improve our stabilization efforts. For example, Somalia is one of the pilot cases where State, USAID, and DOD are working together with embassy staff to implement these principles. Last month, a State Department-led interagency team deployed to Nairobi to develop a stabilization strategy for Somalia. They were in Nairobi due to security conditions in Somalia, based on the SAR principles, and that strategy is being finalized in the coming weeks. When completed, this strategy will identify clear and achievable political goals, stabilization objectives, resource requirements, risks, and broad me measures to, to measure progress. And then the document will be an annex to Mission Somalia's integrated country strategy. Over the next year, we plan to create stabilization strategies in other prioritized countries across the globe. Next month, two State Department-led interagency teams will deploy to Niger and the Central African Republic to help develop their stabilization strategies as well. A second way that we are implementing the SAR is through our enhanced collaborations with the Geographic Combatant Commands, COCOMs. CSO right now has a permanent stabilization advisor at AFRICOM, and I just returned from there, to ensure that state and DOD, and there are aid representations as well, coordinates on our stabilization strategic planning, along with, of course, the POLADs there. And we are setting to expand CSO's stabilization advisors out to the other COCOMs as well, Indopaycom, Southcom, UCOM, and CENTCOM. Third, we are actively assuring burden sharing 
with our international partners. Now, CSO is one of the leading sponsors of what we call the Stabilization Leaders Forum, the SLF. And this is a group of eight like-minded governments that substantially engage in stabilization. And we come together a couple of times a year to discuss our stabilization strategies. The SLF just left State Department today. We had a group of them from yesterday to today to discuss the crisis in Venezuela and how we can coordinate our stabilization planning moving forward. I will be going to Paris in two weeks to attend and to lead our, hosted by the French, to lead our next stabilization forum on the principles of the SAR and to determine how our like-minded partners will be approaching particular functional issues as well as regional issues. We are also creating a mechanism to track stabilization funds and programming so that we can deconflict our work in the field. So in closing, while it's important to move ahead, and we are moving ahead with SAR implementation, there's a couple of things that's important to keep in mind and to recognize. Implementing SAR principles is not going to be easy. Even though we've established clear guidelines among our partners in Washington, D.C. and internationally, implementation depends on political conditions on the ground, political will of our partners seeking stabilization assistance. The very countries that require stabilization have conditions that include illicit groups, weak institutions, corrupt patronage systems, rather than formal institutions. Many are not democratic. In many places, we can't even work with the central government. So the SAR approach is a reform effort. It is both necessary and challenging, and it will be imperfect at first. There's a tremendous expertise and willingness at the Department of State, across the interagency, and here in this room today that enables us to re realize our objectives. So as we move forward with the SAR, both in our country engagements as well as our international reforms, we look forward to hearing your creative ideas, partners from the academic uh, community, uh, and again, in advancing some of these principles. So I would like to thank again CSIS and all of you here. I look forward to the results of this discussion, and I look forward to collaborating with you uh, moving forward. Thank you. I think um, we're going to steal you for a couple more minutes for a couple questions. Uh, okay. So we'll have you just sit down. I um, acknowledged my partners in crime in my introductory remark. I failed to acknowledge that our partners throughout this whole thing have been Chemonics International, uh, and the sponsors of today's event have been Chemonics International. So I just wanted to give them uh, a very big thanks and, and shout out. But with that, uh, oops. Sorry. That's all right. It's always fun. Um, so thank you for that. And, and sure. you had solicited uh, ideas from the crowd. And uh, I think the timing is conspicuous because uh, CSIS published a policy brief on a lot of these, um, how do we operationalize the SAR ideas. And so um, I, I'm guessing that you'll be seeing an email from us uh, later, later today. And I'm sure there are others um, out there who, who have some ideas. But, now that we have you for a few minutes, I thank you for those remarks. And I, I think um, there was a lot of head nodding in, in the room. And, and as there was when I was reading the SAR, this, a lot of this makes a lot of sense. Um, again, the devil's in the details, and this is hard. One of the things that we 
had been thinking about here at CSIS is tools and authorities. Uh, you know, how do we actually make sure that our people that are within government that are tasked with doing this um, have the right authorities and, and tools? And so, can you talk a little bit about the Global Fragility Act? You know, on April 9th, I believe it was, Secretary Pompeo went up to the Hill and, and said that the Global Fragility Act is something that State Department agrees with and it is the right plan and it is the most cost-effective way to tackle this problem. So, you know, th there seems to be bipartisan support for this. Uh, would love your thoughts on, on, you know, whether you support it and CSO, where CSO stands in this and, and, uh, and how you see this moving forward. Sure, thank you. Um, firstly, the State Department broadly supports the Global Fragility Act because as we know it has, it's in two versions. There's a House version and there's a version that is in the Senate, both in acts um, waiting to become a bill. But it, broadly, the State Department supports this effort, which incorporates both versions, and I've read both versions, even though they have elements of distinction, they're really both are grounded in the core principles of the SAR. This is the, 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 the framework that is, that is woven in through both of these acts more targeted assistance, working with local partners on the ground, assuring that civil society is part, um, measurable outcomes, disciplined approach. You'll, you'll, you'll read these themes in both of the acts. So, so whatever version or whatever combination of versions comes out of this, we are prepared and look forward to supporting this bill with the principles of the SAR in mind. With that said, Within State Department, as I indicated, CSO within the Jay family um, would prepare and is preparing to take the lead with the Bureau of Foreign Assistance so that we can prepare the structure or looking at some of the, and preparing the strategic planning for some of this, um, the Global Fragility Act. And, and you think the Global Fragility Act gives you those tools and authorities that you need as CSO to play that leadership role in operationalizing the SAR? My understanding, again, whatever version, whatever version comes out of this, there are clear principles, yep. a plan. Um, how do we identify priority countries? How do we implement key principles? How are we going to establish metrics of quantifiable yep. metrics of success? This is exactly what CSO does. We have a whole team of advanced analytics experts who are looking at these types of issues in the stabilization and conflict prevention space. So we're doing this already, um, and again, there are other components at the State Department where we work with closely, whether if that's on Venezuela, we're working closely with WH, Western Hemispheres Affairs Bureau. If it's the Middle East, then it's NEA. So we work with our partner bureaus, but in terms of this functional expertise, it would be CSO and the F Bureau and Foreign Assistance that is uh, working together on this. Excellent. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, so you've been in the chair for six months now. Six months as of Friday. Six months as of Friday. Six months in one day. Uh, or two days. <laughs> but I'm not counting. Not counting. No, uh, I love it. I actually hadn't, hadn't done the counting myself. I'm not so that counting. I love it. Um, the, you know, but this is not your first rodeo. You've done this for decades. <sighs> I'm a dinosaur. Uh, that was not what I was <laughs> trying to say. You but, don't have to uh, say it. It's been around a long time. <laughs> You have a wealth of experience in post-conflict relief, reconstruction, stabilization. So I, I wanted 
if you could, just for you to talk a little bit about how those experiences pre-government have shaped your leadership of, of CSO, and, and especially in the context of the SAR, which, as you alluded to in your remarks, is such a core part sure. of what you guys are going to be thinking sure. about. Actually, I have to go back because when I first went overseas, I was actually an intern at CSIS, but in the old building. This really marks how old you are because you were down on K Street. Um, but when I first went off, that was actually before, when I first, first went off before CSIS, when I went to Pakistan and I was working doing cross-border relief, uh, we had 180 clinics uh, inside Afghanistan and we were providing healthcare and training. And, and, and from then on, it went on to northern Iraq in the old days in the early 90s up to most recently around other parts of the Middle East. If there's one consistent theme, I would say that takeaway was you really should know country conditions extremely well, understand the nuances of the, of the people that you're working with, of the countries that we're working on, of the geopolitics. We have very good very well-intentioned people working out there. Now, and I, I was one, I am one of them. I believe that I was a part of the DART team. And you go out and you're doing all of this great work. But there are things called historical legacies, path dependencies, structural impediments that are very deeply embedded into some of these countries. It doesn't mean that it can't change, but it means that we really must know uh, what we're getting into. We must really understand, uh, with, go in with you know, eyes wide open and fully prepared for some of the difficulties and then tailor our approaches to that. So understanding where we're, what we're at and where we're in the, in, the, in the local conditions that we're working with. And then, this, and then you could start getting into what are the second and third order consequences of me distributing large amounts of aid to region X. How do I change the local balance of power? Who are the beneficiaries? Who are the spoilers? I mean, it's not just, as you, when I first started, it's not just a one-way arrow. We go there and we give it, with our good intentions, we give assistance and people just absorb. You know, there are people on the ground who have agency. There are path dependencies that we really just can't change. So know where we can, know what can be done in the short term, and know what can be done in the long term. So, so that's one. And, I, and it doesn't mean that you don't engage. It means you have to just find those experts in regions and people who understand uh, local conditions. Because we're getting at a, to a point where assistance is really at a local level where we're being, uh, where, where we're being effective. Secondly, and this each one leads into, there are also you know, what we call in the business positive externalities of aid. Right? There is the good, the good part of it where we are helping those vulnerable communities. But there's people who can also benefit from large assistance. And we've seen this written and we've, you know, those people in, the, in business or practitioners have written about this. But nonetheless, um, again, understanding local conflict economies. This is in addition to politics because stabilization is largely political. There's an important economic component to this that you know, we used to use the word war entrepreneurs or the positive externalities of conflict economies. So again, going all of this feeds into understanding how our stabilization assistance can enable some of this and how we can mitigate some of it. And the third was more of, again, duplication of efforts. So there's a lot of people out there. The, I was working with some different internet and NGOs. 
it's a business too. So with all good intentions, a lot of people want to be out there and doing a lot of things. I remember when I was in Peshawar in the late 80s, when, Najib, when the Russians were still in, in Afghanistan, um, there were like a thousand NGOs in Peshawar, if you can believe it. So, and a lot of people, you know, competing and doing duplication of efforts. Each one doing good work, but a lot of duplication. So some of us... I lived in Juba around independence, so you did? Uh, it's, it's pretty similar, the thousands of thousands. NGOs. Yeah. Thousands. Although I, I don't think there are thousands in Peshawar today. No, no, this was pre-Taliban. But, but another example, and this could be good work, I just came back from Niger, and I went out to the border of Nigeria uh, in, in, a, in a town called Difa, which is where the epicenter of Boko Haram was. It was, you know, it was a little bit of an interesting trip. But in, in the last year, there are 130 NGOs j that just popped up. Now, I'm sure 130. And one of the local leaders or folks told me, one of them said, we're glad that Boko Haram was here in a way because now we have all of this uh, attention. Now, there's some very bad, and I didn't mean to be crude about it, but how do you make sure that we're not duplicating efforts so we don't have this uh, turning into, I don't want to say a business, but a duplication of efforts? So these were some of the things that I, I took away from being overseas and continuously going back. I've been in, in Iraq, I started in 92. So it's about 27 years just on following the, the, North, the, the Iraq continuum with Operation Provide Comfort. There have been such remarkable changes in Iraq that you, you look today and you say, could you imagine if we didn't do X? And it's the will of the Iraqis, but I mean, there were no roads. There was, we were literally you know, putting our car on logs and all of this other bit. But there's also some important continuities Okay, so we have to understand what are the parts of the local politics and the internal power struggles that are still there and shape our straight stabilization strategies accordingly. And, and so how does that affect how I'm looking at the SAR today? When I first read the SAR, it was actually preparing for my confirmation. I read it, I said, this is fantastic. I agree with all of it. I wish I wrote it. Um, and I'm only happier that it's our team that helped write that report with other talented folks at, at state and aid and DOD. Some, some of the authors I see are in the crowd. Yeah, so, so congratulations to you. You did a great job. Um, I, I really believe on targeted assistance, that I approach the work that we do with a very, with an eye towards scrutiny to make sure that the right people in the right places are getting assistance so that we are c developing very clear metrics. If somebody comes to me and says, I have X amount of dollars and I want to do this in Africa, and I'll turn around and say, no, where are the metrics? How are we going to measure this? I'll give you a good example, another example. CSO right now, this is a good example. We are, one of our lines of effort is countering violent extremism, and we work closely with the Bureau of Counterterrorism. We do a lot of the research and analysis, the program design and monitoring and evaluation. So, how are we going to measure whether any of this has any impact? We're creating a base, it's called the baseline study in all of these different countries. Now it's gonna take about a year to do this. How do you know what it is that we're starting from? So we can even know if the programs that we're developing are having any impact. It's, it's not easy. And I'll, to be honest, you can't always measure impact immediately. I don't, you know, many of us here 
did social, some of the social sciences too. We know you can't counterfactual, it didn't happen. I can't measure success sometimes because I don't know, but we do have to do a better job in differentiating between program outputs and policy outcomes. Mm. So what we're focusing on is how are we linking what we do to the policy outcomes, mm. which is it's, it's important to know if, if we're succeeding in our, policy, in our program outputs, but it's not the same thing as policy outcomes. Yeah. And you're going to see that this is what the focus is at state, at where we go, turning this into a policy outcome driven uh, stabilization program. And I think it'll be key to, to continue to tell that story of, you know, we may not be able to assign causality to every right, effort right. that we do with outcomes on the ground, but, you know, we need to tell the story about how what the U.S. did contributed to X, Y, and Z exactly. outcomes. So. There's another point, though, when we, as we approach this, and I was thinking about this as we look at, and there's been a lot of discussions on fragile states. USIP has been doing great work. There's been a lot of, again, the Global Fragility Act. But we're, we're using the language root causes. How do we get at the root causes of this? And, and, and I don't think there's anyone that disagrees that this is a very important component of getting at how do we stabilize some of these countries. However, we have to be careful even when we use the word root causes. This is my view because you can go three and four times removed. How, you know, what is root causes? Is it somebody who doesn't get a job and he or she is so angry at the government and we, when you get into the grievances component of it, you're getting so far removed. How am I linking this, for example, to violent extremism? So, so this is being very careful about how far removed we go when we're looking at root causes because we have to somehow show that this is feeding into uh, instability in the country. I think that makes a lot of sense and, and I think you certainly have your work cut out for you. It looks like you have a really great team. We do. Uh, the interagency collaboration is there and I think real. Um, I'm getting the bat signals okay. um, that, that we need to wrap this okay, up. So you. as much as we could talk uh, all day, thank you for thank taking you the so time much. to do this. Thank you for your public service. Uh, we're going to do a quick scene change, and my colleague Melissa Dalton is going to uh, moderate an all-star panel of, of experts that are going to respond to what they, what they heard here. Um, but please join me in thanking Assistant Secretary Denise Natale. Thank you. Thank you, so thank you so much. That was great. And we'll just head out this way. Okay. I can take that from Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Melissa Dalton. I direct the Cooperative Defense Project here at CSIS, and I'm delighted to open the second component of today's event on pursuing effective and conflict-aware stabilization. Um, as Errol, my colleague, mentioned earlier, uh, he and I have been embarking on a uh, nine-month joint uh, effort here at CSIS to look at the implications of the U.S. government stabilization assistance review that was released last year, um, a really foundational document to guide uh, stabilization efforts in the 21st century context. Um, and I'm really delighted to be welcoming uh, a number of colleagues and, and friends that have been engaging on the implementation of this uh, initiative within government and also um, thinking deeply about its implications on the outside, uh, both from a functional and from a regionalist perspective. Um, so we are going to engage fairly uh, conversationally in, in our panel discussion today and then open up uh, the floor for question and answers from, from our audience. I see a lot of uh, 
key practitioners and, and uh, policy folks in the audience as well. So I'm sure you, you are bringing some great questions to the conversation today. Um, I did want to take a, a moment to introduce our, our panelists um, on my far left is uh, Robert Jenkins, who serves as the Deputy Assistant Administrator for the U.S. Agency of International Development's Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance. Previously, Rob served as the Director of the Office of Transition Initiatives, or OTI, the U.S. government's foremost political transition and post-conflict assistance instrument. He has served in leadership positions both at USAID and the Department of State since 2005. He first joined USAID in 1998 and has supported programs in Iraq, Syria, Macedonia, Serbia, and Montenegro, Kosovo, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Nigeria, among several <laughs> others. Um, so you have to, him, him to thank. Um, to, to my immediate left is uh, Ambassador Barbara Bodine, who serves as a distinguished professor in the practice of diplomacy and concurrently as director of the Institute of the Study of Diplomacy at Georgetown University. Prior to joining Georgetown, she taught and directed policy task forces and workshops on U.S. diplomacy for seven years at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and served as director of the school's scholars in the Nation's Service Initiative. Ambassador Bodine's over 30 years in the U.S. Foreign Service were spent primarily on the Arabian Peninsula and greater Persian Gulf issues, specifically U.S. bilateral and regional policy, strategic security issues, counterterrorism, governance, and reform. And in uh, the middle is Francis Brown, who serves as a fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Democracy, Conflict, and Governance Program, where she researches stabilization, state building, democratization, decentralization, drivers of conflict, and local governance in fragile states. She served for 15 years as a practitioner and analyst at the intersection of conflict and governance. Most recently, she was uh, served on the NSC staff for both the Obama and Trump administration as director for democracy. Prior to the NSC, uh, Francis worked for five years at USAID's OTI office. So I'm truly delighted to have this uh, considerable array of, of expertise joining us today um, to unpack some of these issues. I would like to pose an opening question to the group um, as you have all been um, familiar with and engaging on both the formulation and uh, the, the outreach surrounding the SAR. What are the key next steps that you'd like to see for, for SAR implementation? And maybe we'll start on the end with Rob. Oh, well, thank you. Um, thanks to CSIS, always. It's always great back to be back here. And uh, I definitely feel like the underachiever on this panel. <laughs> and Ambassador, I did not know you started the Foreign Service at age eight. That's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Um, <clears throat> the SAR. So a very small, passionate team of bureaucrats got together and started what became the SAR. And it took us about a year to write. It's now been over a year, and we still need to get implementation actually going. I have been amazed at how it's already entered the lexicon. I've been amazed how many foreign partners have quoted it back to us. Mm -hmm. I've been amazed that it's already been written into legislation. I've been amazed that it's already been written into DOD doctrine. I've been amazed that GAO did an audit and said that state, USAID and DOD now have to officially make it something other than a glossy pamphlet. All of that stuff is awesome. Now we just have to do it. <laughs> Oh, drat. And the bureaucracy has done what the bureaucracy always does. Let's just slow things down. 
The SAR is almost, I think, like a Rorschach test. Depending what you think about stabilization, it's interesting to see people using it to either justify stabilization as the solution for every problem under the sun now, or others will find one of the things and say, oh, you can't do stabilization here because the SAR says if you don't have this, you don't have that. It's not a Bible. It's a compendium of hard-learned lessons over the last decade and a half. I think what we just need to do is now get on with it. So 3000.05, the rewrite of the, of the Pentagon's um, doctrine, needs to be socialized, it needs to become real. We're still working with our colleagues on the Hill to try to get defense support to stabilization as legislation. They do not, DOD does not have the authorities to do what we want them to do under the SAR, which is give us the support and step in before if the civilians aren't able to step in yet. There's a whole, we, we, we still have not got what we need, which is we want a global MOU between DOD state and USAID so that we can, as civilians, co-deploy with the military if we need to. Start forward in Syria was a wonderful um, prototype it took us many, 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 many months to get so we could have just seven civilians with our military colleagues in, in uh, northeast Syria. We haven't gotten anywhere on that yet because the bureaucracy comes out strong. So there's those structural things we have to do. There's also now the cultural thing in that there is a lot of scar tissue in a lot of places in this town and around the world because of what didn't work in Afghanistan and what didn't work in Iraq and nation building equals stabilization and all that stuff, some of which the policy paper that you guys just came out with talks about. We have got to get people to understand the SAR is a new way of doing business. That The answers were all there for us the whole way through. I would have anyone that wants to read the CIGAR stabilization report, which is 309-something pages of really smart people doing stupid stuff. And if you look through that, though, throughout, there were a lot of people that were trying to put up their hand in Washington, in Kabul, saying, this is not the way to do it, but being you know, steamrolled with the newest idea of the day. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be $500 million, and we're Americans, so there is no problem we can't fix with more people and more money. These problems aren't fixable, they're manageable. As Undersecretary Natali said, the people that live there have agency. The SAR is about that. It's not dreamt up in the Situation Room. It's got to be hyper-contextual, hyper-specific. It's all there. Now we just have to get on with it. So. Great. Great opening salvo. Francis, would you like to follow up on that? Sure, Ooh, salvo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll see your salvo <laughs> yeah. and, and raise you. Of the sit room, you know, mm. Francis, I think, was a, a key uh, instigator of, of the SAR from her prior position. I've, well, I've noticed that the SAR now has like a thousand parents, yes. and it, which yes. means that it's a victory. Um, and, and I do, I'd like to claim some small role for my role at the NSC, but um, I think the, the hard work was definitely done in the interagency. Um, but that actually feeds it directly into Rob's point. I mean, when I think of next steps for the SAR or sort of moving forward, I think of basically a basket of reform next steps, bureaucratic next steps, and I think of a basket of sort of key policy trade-offs that we now need to adjudicate going forward. Um, and on the key bureaucratic reforms going forward, I 
co-sign mm -hmm. everything Rob said. I think the global memorandum of understanding on co-deployment, you know, so much manpower has been spent on this issue over and over again. Let's get it done. Defense support to stabilization, legislative proposal, yes, co-sign. Um, I like the policy brief uh, recommending that there be someone in the State Department of, of even above the Assistant Secretary level who can sort of drive integration among regional and functional bureaus on stabilization. So there's a lot good there, and I think we're very clear. Um, of course, from my former role at the NSC, I personally believe parochially that there should be an NSC director whose job is to help on this coordination of STAR, STAR going forward. Um, that the amazing work of the interagency coordinating these, uh, these strands of effort needs some help from the White House on getting it done. But of course, that's my personal view. <laughs> so that's the bureaucratic side, um, and I, I agree with everything Rob said. Um, in terms of the next steps, the sort of deeper policy questions that we need to adjudicate going forward, to my mind, there's basically three big ones that I think now that we've got the SAR out there in its glossy form, uh, we need to sort of develop a theory of the case on within the US government. So n number one is the tension between short-term stability and long-term inclusive governance. Tension number two is the trade-off between stabilization as sort of a linear process with an end state versus the reality of conflict, as Rob has said and as the Assistant Secretary has said, you know, the reality of conflict is now a much sort of longer-term simmering condition, so process versus condition. Uh, and the third trade-off I see is uh, what, Rob, you've referred to as the gap between our rhetoric and our reality when it comes to stabilization. So just quickly on all three, so on the first sort of, I see there being a, um, a trade-off that I think is well known to many of the practitioners in the audience between a short-term stability move and a long-term inclusive governance situation. So as many in this room know, sometimes uh, in the short term we need to empower actors who bring us short-term stability but in the long term aren't getting at the legitimate inclusive local governance that the SAR speaks about. Um, and that's a trade-off and we, you know, we, we have had to deal with it. Uh, on the flip side, sometimes the process of getting to a broader base, more inclusive governance structure can be destabilizing um, and we, we have to manage that. So I think the SAR lays this out really well. I think I'd also commend to you the UK's documents on stabilization, which sort of talk about broadening accountability over time, sort of starting with a deal and broadening over time. So there's a lot of uh, smart people inside of government grappling with this every day. I just think maybe we need to develop more of a theory of the case within the USG on that sort of next order tension. Uh, the second trade-off that I think we need to think hard about is this trade-off between stabilization as a process, as a linear process, versus the reality of conflict in 2019, which is it is a, often a simmering background condition or foreground condition. So we, of course, see this in Syria, um, you know, Yemen, ongoing conflict. Afghanistan has been obviously under conflict um, for nearly two decades in this iteration. Uh, so we know all this, um, and yet sometimes our programming and our sort of policy documents kind of assume a linear progress uh, over five years, three to five years. Uh, we know that's not rea a reality. Do we need to maybe shift more to thinking about, rather than managing transition, kind of coping with the politics and muddling through? Building resilience is something we talk about a lot, um, and, and I think it's recognized that we need to do that. But sort of, do we need to reconceive of really what we mean by stabilization if we're just trying to help communities manage fallout and manage the own risks to our own national security? Uh, again, I think people within government have long been grappling with this, but maybe we need to take a more systemic look at it um, for our policy. And then the third gap that I see is this gap between rhetoric and reality. 
um, that Rob used to quote back to us in, in OTI, so I know it's well familiar to many. But what I mean by this is, so I spent the last couple weeks uh, in Amman, Jordan, and Beirut, Lebanon, and have been working on Syria stabilization a lot, um, looking at our efforts in the Northeast in particular. Um, and what strikes me in these areas is that what we're doing under a stabilization heading in Northeast Syria actually has nothing in common with the official definition that we now have in the SAR mm -hmm. of stabilization. So we are not trying to have an inherently political process. We are not trying to actually empower the local authorities. We are not um, driving towards a closely defined, realistically defined political end state. Um, that's just not what we're doing. And there are good reasons for this. I am not picking on the Syria policymakers. I was one of them. <laughs> but I, I do think we need to think deeply about if, if we now have this definition, the starting point definition of stabilization, can we refine more in practice what are the different variations on that? So those are sort of the frontiers that I see going forward for star next, step, star next steps. Excellent. Thanks so much, Francis. Ambassador, somebody that has uh, worked these issues very closely on, on the front lines, if you will, in many countries. Uh, yes. Well, first of all, um, again, uh, thanks to CSIS for your, your work and for putting this together and for all of the many fathers and mothers uh, of SAR, um, wherever you may be, all of you. Um, and I will say that, you know, when I, when I first read the SAR, um, there was a, a lot of, you know, holy tadpoles, how long did it take us to get to this? <laughs> um, or words to that effect. Um, because I was part, I, my career has been mostly been bookend by uh, multiple tours in Iraq and multiple, and a long history with Yemen. Um, and, and I will say, the SAR to me read like, somebody took a look at what we did in Iraq and had the good sense to turn it on its, Self, uh, and everything we did wrong in Iraq, we learned from, uh, and we did just about everything wrong in Iraq that you could possibly do, um, including military lead, uh, USAID as handmaiden, uh, and State Department as irrelevant. Um, and I will tell you that when I went into Iraq in in '03. Uh, and I just went, I went in before the military, well, just shortly after the military, I don't know when, early, um, real, real early, um, that when I went in, I was the only person who had ever served in Iraq, mm. and I was the only person who spoke Arabic, uh, and that was ridiculous. Uh, and I will say that most of the people I dealt with could have cared less that I knew anything about Iraq um, or that I knew the language. And in fact, was told once, working with our, the DOD leadership at the time, as I was trying to get, as, as was, you know, context, history, people, what are we going into? How do you pronounce the name of this country correctly? Um, <laughs> it is not Iraq, by the way. Um, but just trying to get some basics in and was told explicitly by one of the senior people in DOD, we don't need that. We are smarter than history. At that point, you know you have a problem. <laughs> um, and if I had had any sense, I would have left. Um, we, the SAR turns it around and again puts the policy, the history, the context, the where are we going, and the why are we going, I think, where it belongs at state. 
with the people who know how to do the development with USAID and then um, DOD to support and puts a, an appropriate emphasis, very appropriate emphasis on local actors. Um, where you guys have taken it is great. Mm -hmm. All your questions about how do you institutionalize this, internalize this, and make it more than a, a glossy document is, is very well uh, put. The one part of the SAR that gives me great pause is it talks about a one to five year timeline. Mm. Um, it takes more than one to five years to repair a city hit by a hurricane when all they are really suffering from is physical infrastructure and some social disruption, but not cataclysmic change. Uh, the one to five year timeline, even though it says all the right words about this is going to transition onward and building the base, and I, I read all the pretty words, um, my deep concern is that we will come up with one to five year plans that are really focused more on what I would call securitization of the situation mm -hmm. and not really sustainable stability of legitimate governance and all that goes into that, rebuilding education systems and health mm -hmm. systems and the local governance and letting legitimate actors, not ours to choose, uh, be able to have the agency that they should. And so my, my, the one flashing light that I saw as I read the report is that it becomes an excuse to say, we have our one, three, five year plan, and now we transition out, not over to, but just out. And we do something as we did in Syria where, okay, we've declared military victory, the kinetic uh, operations are over, it is, it is a success. And dear allies, now would you please pick up the pieces and, and do the rest. So my concern with the SAR is that it is not a base, but will become a ceiling. Great, that's, that's perfect. Rob, I wanna circle back to you as you outlined um, some of the, the roadblocks that you see um, or key questions for SAR implementation going forward. What are the institutional impediments uh, to, to implementation going forward? And what does USAID and more broadly the US interagency need to do together to, to overcome them? Well, thanks, Melissa, and I'd like to just point out I'm the only person that can be fired for what I say on this panel today. <laughs> so I would, there there I would, are joys. I would hate to say there were any bureaucratic compromises great. made when, in the writing of the SAR. Um, I will point out that Search for Common Ground says it takes at least eight to ten years to have a program that's going to be able to do anything to stand on its own after you leave. And a few years back, I think it was 2011, the World Bank's World Development Report said, you know, looking at all of the transitions defined however you want since World War II, the average is somewhere between 25 and 40 years. Yes, yeah. exactly. Unfortunately, my former colleague will be able to tell you that if you walk into any meeting in the interagency, especially in the Situation Room, and you said, I have a masterful plan, it will take 25 years you don't get invited back. They always work at a six month time frame, and poor Melissa's heard me say this a thousand times, I think, but <clears throat> I don't know about you guys, but 
I can't get my kitchen redecorated in six months. No, you can't find a contractor. Uh, the story. The, the, po the Post had a story about the water system in Flint, Michigan the other day. It's been five years, Flint, right? So how are we supposed to fix the water system in Raqqa in six months? Mm -hmm. So there's, that's part of the cultural change. Yeah. Before that, it's the cultural change within government. Who is willing to stand up to Assistant Secretary X or Under Secretary of Defense Y and say, this is a problem that we are not going to solve? That is a pretty simple thing to do in theory. It's amazing how little, I, th I think the SAR hopefully, and I take it, I like it should not be a, a ceiling, but at least gives people some bureaucratic ammunition to say, it's not just me talking. Look, everybody agreed. Your principal agreed to this. For aid, as great as it is that we're there as the lead implementer, my God, if we got all the other pieces in place tomorrow and everyone said, we expect you, A, to be the lead implementer to do all these things, we would be the dog that caught the car. Because on the structural side, we do not have a huge cadre of wonderfully talented people with the experience and the training that could go co-deploy co within a moment's notice in more than one or two or three or four or five countries mm -hmm. at a given time. We have a lot of people that are willing to go. They're not necessarily the people with the right experience. We have the people with the right experience have said, I did that for too long. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to bring people up without, I mean, it's, it, yeah. it, it's gonna take some time to get where we need to be, but that's okay. All good things take some time. Mm -hmm. But we have to be realistic and we have to get on with it. And again, within aid, there's the cultural piece. There's the, Everyone works off of five-year strategies in these development countries, which is great, CDCS. As my administrator, Mark Greenwood, said, we are helping every country find and get on their own journey to self-reliance. I just happen to work in the countries that are a long way from that. Sometimes we can't even see the road. It's going to take a long time but your five-year strategy that you just put in place and it took you two years to get it, so it's really already outdated by the time you started, how, is, how are you going to progress for five years on the same strategy in any of these places? I'm a big believer in strategic patience. That used to, some of it tried to make that a dirty word. I think strategic mm. patience is what we need. But strategic patience as an end goal that you are constantly reassessing many times a year, are we getting to where we need to mm -hmm. be? The SAR says that very simply. For aid, those, it's a long way to get that rhetoric to reality. Yeah. There's a lot of socialization. There's a lot of culturalization. There's a lot of trying to get people to wrap their head around the difference between good development and relevant development. Mm -hmm. And we do a lot of good development programs in countries where we've been for 55 years. Yeah. I think we have an opportunity right now at aid, but also the interagency. There is this confluence of the legislation, the USIP report, the SAR, um, whether it's the Hill, whether it's outside, whether it's inside. I wear another hat, which is I'm the CVE coordinator for USAID. I'm the point on stabilization. I do a whole bunch of stuff on fragility. People are starting to see that a lot of those are false 
uh, characterizations. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of difference usually, and the programming for CVE is basically the programming for SAR. Yeah. It's about local, hyper-contextualized, local conditions. It's going to take some time. Be realistic. Make sure all of the government is linked up. At aid, we have a long way to go to make sure that people are getting that. They can read it. They can agree. They can salute. But being able to implement that and implement it at the speed of relevance and at the scale that our interagency partners are relying on us, mm -hmm. is that's a heavy yeah. lift. And that's, that's for aid where our next steps are. Yeah. So, you know, I think this tracks really nicely with some of the, the tensions that Francis and, and really the three of you have laid out in terms of, you know, the, the short-term nature as defined in the SAR and the hard realities of actually executing stabilization, connecting it to that um, peace continuum roadmap um, that needs to be brokered with the United States and its, its partners on the ground. And the SAR also heavily emphasizes the importance of burden sharing mm -hmm. as, as a core principle. And Ambassador, I'd love to turn to you next in terms of your experience um, in Iraq, in Yemen. What does successful burden sharing actually look like and as it applies to stabilization context? Right. Um, yeah, it's, I suppose burden sharing is the what we know we used to call multilateralism. Yes, it's the term okay. of art. Okay, I just I just want to be sure that I've, I've got the right the right cool words. Um, it is multilateralism, um, and again, this is this is again a flip of what we were doing wrong in in Iraq, where uh, it was basically we alone can fix this, uh, and. We tried to do everything ourselves. Uh, we tried to have our military do everything ourselves, and then you know, USAID and state were were you know tagging along as quickly as we could. Um, it is to me, it is recognition of reality. One, uh, even if you think our economy is very strong and our power is still great, we cannot do everything. We simply can't. Uh, we don't have the same set of priorities as even some of our best friends. Uh, we don't have all the talents and skills. Um, you know, Rob has talked about, you know, we have limitations. And in the early days in Iraq, we were getting some coalition support. And for example, one of the issues that we were going to be dealing with is how do you transition an army that had been working for a ruthless dictator for several decades into an army that was going to be working for what we thought was going to be a better kind of government. We don't have any experience like that. We know what it's supposed to look like, but we don't have any experience with the transition. And one of the coalition civilians who popped up in my uh, office as coordinator for everything, um, authority for nothing, coordinator for everything, <laughs> Uh, was a senior Spanish general who had come up through the ranks of the Spanish military under Franco and had been the person who had done the transition from the Franco military to the democratic Spanish military. I thought, holy, this, is, this guy's great. He's done it. I remember taking him to our leadership and saying, we have somebody here who has done this isn't this great? And they kind of looked at him and said, but he's not one of us. Mm -hmm. And they basically sent him back to Madrid. This happened over and over and over again. 
Um, we need, I think, one of the skills that we need to get is in addition to strategic patience is humility. Hmm. And burden sharing, I don't like it because it makes it sound like what we're doing is a burden. And it's not a burden. This is something we're doing for our own sake as well as whomever is on the receiving line. So I don't like burden sharing because I don't like the sense it's a burden. But being able to draw on the talents and the skills of partners who have a shared vision, um, that is something that's where state hopefully can help out. It's something we do on the ground all the time, mm -hmm. and we've been in other conferences on this. Um, on the ground in countries, it's not at all unusual for the various, the various donor embassies and multilaterals to work together and kind of go, okay, I've got these five priorities and this much money, and you've got these priorities and this much money, and how can we make them dovetail? Because we cannot go back to an earlier uh, comment from our keynoter, um, we can't afford to duplicate. We can't afford to be redundant. And we can't afford to allow gaps. And for example, when we had a change in administration in Yemen when I was ambassador, and suddenly I can't do anything on family planning anymore, um, so I go running off to my Dutch colleague and say, you know, can you pick up my program? But one of the things we found with our midwife program is those little sort of Marcus Welby doctor kits, you know, a little bag. <laughs> the Dutch couldn't cover that. <clears throat> I could. And so that's kind of a micro version. Mm -hmm. The way you do, can I please call it multilateral coalition sure. building? <laughs> Thank you. Um, is you have to be able to define a common end state. You might not fully agree on all of the priorities, but you have to have a common end state. It, it can't, you know, to use a phrase, it, can't, it has to be something of a coalition of the willing, um, hopefully a little bit more structured, but it will give us some more time. Uh, it might get us beyond the one, three, five years. It's gonna take us one, three, five years to get to the one, three, five years. Um, it buys some more time. It gives nuance. It, it is entirely possible. I, I would love to know what are the eight countries who are part of this forum can probably guess. But to also think more creatively about local um, regional players who can contribute. Um, for Yemen, one of our big uh, focuses is getting the education system up and running, for example. Bringing a teacher, a Yemeni teacher here for education training is idiotic. It costs way too much money, and the language is wrong. Jordan, good education system, right language, much cheaper. So being creative about who these are and getting away from maybe this core eight, um, I think if we do it with humility, and again, one of the little maybe yellow flashing signs that I saw in the SAR is that it read too much like, we are gonna decide what are the priority countries. We are going to decide what is this, the priority strategy. We are going to decide, we are going to decide. And then we're gonna to go to appropriate countries, governments, and ask them to contribute and to pick up various things. You know, dear Emiratis, we want your money. Dear Saudis, we want your money. Dear Spanish, please do the transition. But we will be doing all the deciding. Um, 
that's not going to work. It has to be a horizontal conversation that takes about one to three, well, at least a year <laughs> to do. But we've got to get this humility. We've got to get this horizontal. We need to see it as partnerships and not burden sharing. My burden, you share. Great, thanks, thanks for that. And that is actually the, the key theme of the policy brief that Errol uh, Hijab and Mackenzie and I put out today um, ah. on civilization. So, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> and you know, I think, you know, there's Does that also- sort of like a foster mother? Yes, exactly. Across the room, yes. Um, Babysitter. You know, <laughs> and I think the, um, there's also a theme being, being drawn out in terms of what it takes to not only pull together a coalition you know, of multilateral stakeholders, but also to sustain it and, mm -hmm. and how we um, you know, define that theory of change, define those metrics that everybody can get on board um, behind um, to, to chart that progress um, and then translating that to the array of, of donor and, and policy audiences. This can be very difficult for a host of reasons because stabilization takes time to bear fruit. It's an iterative process with our local partners that have their own agendas. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, to, to Francis, um, based on your experience both in government and also as an analyst on the outside, how can we best connect locally grown, bottom-up stabilization approaches to top-down policy goals, um, particularly given the array of actors um, that we need to bring to bear in a coalition approach um, while allowing for adaptations, uh, failures on a pathway to success as, as we go? Yeah, I think this is such an important uh, question, and I think the SAR really grapples with this when it talks about an analytically defined end state that we're driving for. So I think just laying that out there is an important, very important first step. Uh, I also like the Assistant Secretary's emphasis on analytics and sort of knowing how our programmatic inputs were leading to policy outcomes. So I think we're all sort of gelling along these same lines. I think collectively, we in the US government have actually made a lot of progress on these questions mm -hmm. over the past 10 years, and probably since the, the Iraq, um, the first Iraq intervention, I think there's been a lot of progress. Mm -hmm. um, we've moved, I think, much towards much more innovative technology, remote monitoring, third party monitoring. I think this is all to the good. We've seen um, indexes like the stability index. Um, we've seen various other forms, quasi-experimental forms of measuring stability. So I think this is all good. Like we're, we're working hard to, on this question uh, of how do we just not throw resources at the problem. I do think we've had some recurring challenges in how we actually monitor success towards our end state. Uh, and, the recurring challenges that I've seen across countries, the different stabilization interventions I've, I've witnessed or been party to, um, one is that we often focus too much on specific localities, mm -hmm. often the good news story localities, <clears throat> yeah. kind of to the exclusion of the broader systemic picture. So for those of us who served in Afghanistan, we heard a lot about the successful districts. I see Kevin Melton here in the back. Argandab District, congratulations, was a big success. Solved it. I solved it. <laughs> um, Marawara <laughs> District, I see Scott Withrow, I believe, <laughs> next to him. So all, all the successful districts, uh, Nada Lee, uh, Nawa. So we heard a lot about these really successful areas, and they were genuine 
um, they were genuine accomplishments uh, in terms of the stabilization project. The problem was Afghanistan had, over, had roughly 400 districts. <laughs> it had over 100 key terrain districts. So whatever was going on in Argandab, which may or may not have been Kevin Melton being in Argandab, <laughs> that didn't help us understand what are the yeah. factors that make it more generalizable. And I think something that may have happened in our own sort of information ecosystem is that these stories of the really compelling yeah. narratives of these success stories kind of crowded out our understanding of the bigger picture and the other localities. I think sometimes we wanted to believe that what was going on in Argandab could somehow spread inkblot style mm -hmm. to neighboring districts. Right. That's actually not often how it works. Um, mm -hmm. Even much as the demonstration effect is something we wanted to believe in, I think there were a lot of often a lot of other factors. So I think that's one problem. And I've seen this in Syria as well. We've heard stories of, again, really compelling local councils in Sarakib and Marat Numan showing tremendous courage and, and responsiveness. Um, all tremendous stories, but none of that makes it generalizable of what, you know, what the broader Syria local council project uh, had the prospects to achieve. So that's number one, is um, localities crowding out our general sense mm -hmm. of direction. Um, problem number two that I've seen over and over again uh, is our fixation on kind of monitoring week to week or month to month. Oh God, yes changes in fleeting <laughs> indicators, like traffic on a road, bizarre activity, mm -hmm. um, even what a district council is doing in terms of being responsive or mm -hmm. not. These are all really important changes, and, and it's great to see when our stabilization endeavors are kind of spurring these changes in the moment. But none of that really tells us whether mm -hmm. or not we're changing the structural issues in the country um, to make that change endure after we leave. Mm -hmm. So something like mobility on the road or bizarre activity is often heavily conditioned on our security posture there. Um, similarly, if people are coming to the district center or not for services, is heavily conditioned on whether or not we have a lot of money that we're giving to the district center to provide to them. So this doesn't mean we shouldn't look at the fleeting indicators or the sort of day in, day out, but it does mean we need to, I think, look more closely at what are the durable shifts that these sort of fleeting changes are enabling in the long term? It's much harder. Um, the third uh, sort of recurring pattern that I've seen um, when it comes to sort of over and over again, uh, what have we done, is this focus on individuals, key individuals, charismatic individuals, <clears throat> rather than the overall structures or institutions. So again, we all know a district governor who showed tremendous courage and you know, really got it on local governance or a local council, local authority, a traditional leader. All that's exciting, but again, I think sometimes those stories crowd out our understanding of what are we doing to actually shape the incentives and authorities of the governance structures as a whole. Um, and the sad fact is in a lot of these places that we've all worked, um, tragically, a lot of these charismatic leaders get assassinated or get moved around. Or, you, know, you can't place all of your eggs in, in that one basket, as we know. But I do think those stories crowd out. So what do we do about it? What are the sort of how, how do we get around these patterns? I, I think two things. One, I think during the lifetime of our stabilization endeavors, I think we absolutely need a more realistic sense of how long this will take. Mm -hmm. But we also need to really unpack our own assumptions if, um, on how we think these short-term changes are affecting the big picture. So if we think it, you know, it's great that more citizens are coming to the district uh, center for services, what are we doing in the medium term to make sure the district government can give services a year from now when we're not there? Are we, are we working on the budgetary devolution? Are we working on their authorities? Um, so really unpacking our sort of assumptions there. 
Um, but the bigger thing I think we need to do is actually uh, take a much closer look at stabilization efforts after we have left or after mm -hmm. the programming has ended. <clears throat> this is something that we, we, I think we all acknowledge, but it just rarely happens. Um, so one year after we've departed, five years after we've departed, 10 years after we've departed. I mean, the, the Afghan surge ended in 2012, so you know, we're coming up on eight years later. Uh, there's a lot of districts out there that we could go back and see, you know, how's Argandab doing now? Um, I don't know, actually. So I think that would, if making a sort of an ex post look at, close look at these areas, maybe using some of the same indicators that we did during uh, the time frame, I think that could tell us a lot on what stuck, what didn't, what worked, what didn't, and hopefully in inform our own efforts going yeah. forward. Can I just Absolutely. Ask, ask a question about that? Because when you were, I mean, I agree with you entirely, and I, I think that the, the really good news stories um, actually set us up for frustration and failure. Because, um, you know, the New York Times or the LA Times or somebody does a story on this charismatic leader or this pick your own great story. The minute that journalist just goes next door and <laughs> finds out that, well, they're not all like this person and it's not all like this, they kind of go, oh, it's a failure. Whereas if you kind of mm -hmm. curb people's enthusiasm <laughs> a little bit, and I think sometimes we feed this because we want Congress, we want the White House, we want mm -hmm. our masters to know that we're being successful. So we go find these nice good stories, even if we understand that you know the ink blots don't connect. And so this is, I know it's kind of hard not to oversell because you need people to support your program, but we're setting ourselves up. Um, the other question though I have for you, if I, if I may, is that you were talking about the sustain, what I, sustainability after we leave. That's exactly one of my concerns. First of all, people talk about we're leaving Afghanistan. Well, they mean the military is leaving. You know, we are not the military. The U.S. government is not the military. Making that distinction between, yes, the military is leaving, have we securitized the place enough so you're really doing stabilization and then sustainable legitimacy? We, uh, why are we leaving? The, the we sitting here mm -hmm. should not be leaving. The military leaves, we don't leave. And so the going back in a year or five years, hopefully we have not abandoned the place. Mm -hmm. So that's my question I, to you all. I fully agree. I'll be interested in Ram's thoughts. And, and my, Sorry. for what it's yeah, worth. You got the question. <laughs> no, I was actually looking at both. Oh, of I, got, I got an answer. Okay. <laughs> okay. I have a very quick answer. For what it's worth, I mean, my, the way I think about it is, um, do you remember Spinal Tap? This one goes to 11. Yes. So, like, that's how we do stabilization, is we're like on zero. And then this one for this 18 months goes to 11. Right. And then we're like right back down. Yeah. Um, in my perfect stabilization world, which I realize we're not in, I would love us to be at a four for yeah. 10 years. Right. Like, that sounds like a pretty good, yeah. realistic pace of change, which is what the star talks about. Um, and then, we're not setting up you know, massive structures and massive expectations only to have- And massive burdens on the locals. And massive burdens on the locals, absolutely. And massive, yeah, sort of just a massive bloated war economy that we were hearing about earlier, mm -hmm. only to have that burst 18 months later. Um, so that would yeah. be my preference. I'll be quick, I can't beat a Spinal Tap reference. <laughs> um, you can try. Ambassador, on your point with <laughs> military colleagues, they don't do it as much as they used to. 
Yeah. They used to always lead with, so uh, what's your exit plan? <laughs> what's your end state? Mm -hmm. I think the reason they don't do it as much as they used to is some of us would go back and say, well, what's your exit plan? Because that Afghanistan exit plans worked really well. Mm -hmm. The answer is we don't have an exit plan. Mm -hmm. How many embassies say, oh, we're going to be here until the job is done? Mm -hmm. The job is never done for State yeah. Department. No. And a lot of these places for aid, we want it to be done, but let's get realistic. It's going to be a long time. Right, exactly. It's not about finishing. I know. It's about the next state. And that's what exactly is, yeah. what is the next state. So that's, that's what we exactly have to do. That's exactly what I'm getting yeah. at. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm getting at. On the, the little snapshots of lovely little green places in the middle of the desert. I'm old enough to remember that when I started at AID, the big problem was how do we sell what we're doing to Congress and how do yeah. we sell it to the American people? No one understands. And we created the magical one pager. We created the fact sheet. We came up with these, and then someone said, let's put a photograph of a smiling child on that. Oh, absolutely. Somehow we've now gotten into programs that, before we know it, we're creating programs for the purpose of coming up with a good news story every week. Mm -hmm. And I get a whole lot of these products in my email, email every, every day that one part of the U.S. government is trying to success, sell success of their program to another part of the U.S. government. Different parts of AIDS try to say, look at my program. Different parts of state, look at my program. Meanwhile, that country is going down the tank. And you're like, but I've seen every week from you a lovely smiling child. I was gonna say, but my, I've got a cuter kid than you do. Right. <laughs> so the opinion section, the opinion section this year did their annual all the things I'm supposed to give up for spring cleaning, right? One of them was stop looking at the stock index every day because it's not a good indicator. Yeah. Look, we have the equivalent of day trading. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it actually drives programming at some point because mm. no one wants to take the time and say, things aren't going well right now, but you know why? Because this is really hard. Yeah. And it's gonna take some time and there's gonna be some good news stories and there's gonna be some bad news stories, but let's not get in the day trading thing. Mm -hmm. um, I see you're already going to make a shut up. So I'll, I had a great Spinal Tap we reference just, too. We're getting uh, close to it. And I did want to <laughs> offer uh, just, just one um, closing question to you all. And then we are going to turn to the audience for, for a brief um, Q&A. Um, this is a fairly self-selecting crowd uh, that it is interested in stabilization. But we're having this conversation in a broader foreign policy context, mm -hmm. uh, the era of strategic competition to use another uh, oh, yeah. buzzword, um, given the increasing policy and resourcing shift to Russia and China, why is stabilization still important? All right. One minute response from each of you. Greatest nation on earth has to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. That's my line. When I look at the, oh, cool. <laughs> when I look at the future as we must prepare for great power competition, I don't see massive numbers of tanks rolling across large pieces of geography. I see some friends and people I know here who know a lot more about history and military history than I do. I would posit we have never predicted the next war very well. So let's prepare for more than one thing at a time. Two, we're doing this right now. We will do this. And if any place on the globe 
that we need to compete with other powers. It's these gray spaces. It's these places mm -hmm. where the competition is happening right now. So we cede that territory at our apparel and the peril of the national security of the United States. Great. Francis? Fully agree. Um, and I, this, this always perplexes me because it's almost <laughs> assuming that the world is divided into two regions. One is regions in which we are competing with Russia or China, and the other is regions in which we're doing stabilization. Whereas <laughs> in reality, these two problem sets overlap significantly. Um, and it would be a real missed opportunity if at this moment the U.S. government is marshalling around a counter uh, China policy and marshalling around a counter Russia policy and the stabilization crowd is like out in a disembodied sort of mass <laughs> with abstract knowledge yeah. that's not being applied. I mean, these tools and these modes of collaboration are so applicable um, to these gray space conflicts that um, I desperately hope that those who are still inside government are doing everything they can to link them up. Oh, perfect. Ambassador. Yeah. Um, the, the, I'm old enough to remember the Cold War. Um, <laughs> And the Cold War was not tanks. You know, we right. never did have yeah. tanks going through the Fula Gap. Uh, it never happened. It was called a Cold War for a very good reason. USAID was established as a Cold War tool, mm -hmm. along with the Peace Corps, along with VOA. We fought the Cold War by engaging in countries that needed assistance. And we managed, not single-handedly, but a billion people came out of poverty mm -hmm. from the end of World War II to today. Uh, we won the Cold War because we were doing what we now call stabilization. <laughs> we won the Cold War because we are now doing what we call multi what we now call burden sharing. Uh, we <laughs> She's getting on message. I know. Um, but if we want to compete with the Russians, we need to look at what worked the last time. Mm. And a lot of it is exactly what we're talking about here. If you're talking about competing with the Chinese, the Chinese, we're not going to be rolling tanks across, you know, or, or ships through the Taiwan Straits. We're out there competing with the Belt and Road. And that program has a lot of downsides. They use Chinese labor, indebtedness, we all know all of that. But there are countries around the world who say, yeah, but I'm getting a harbor, I'm getting a railroad, I'm getting, I'm getting infrastructure, and I need this to develop. I need this to provide jobs and, and everything. So a lot of what we're talking about here is part of how you compete with China and Russia if you want to see that as the only thing that we are doing, which I, it makes no sense whatsoever. So, yeah. Great. Thank I, agree. I totally agree. Perfect. Thank you so much. I do want to um, gather up a few uh, questions and answers from the audience. We do have CSI staff members um, that have microphones in hand. Um, when I call on you, if you please would state your name and affiliation and your uh, question in the form of a question. I'm also going to bundle a few folks together. So there's a gentleman here, a uh, gentleman here, and a gentleman up here. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, Sean O'Reilly, I'm with USAID, and my question is for Robert. So I know going into the future, USAID is restructuring into a conflict bureau. How does that conflict bureau compare to state's conflict bureau, and how are you going to clearly define lanes and communicate and coordinate efforts? Great. And then if we could bring the microphone down here, please. Thank you so much. Mike Jagic uh, from the George Mason University 
Peace and Stability Ops Master's Program. Thank you so much for having this event. For those of us who care about stabilization, we have great hope for the success of uh, <laughs> the SAR. So I have two, one observation, two quick questions, and they really are for the Assistant Secretary, but this panel and their insights will be invaluable. The observation is that in the SAR, it stated state is in the lead for planning, but it didn't say who. And so from the Assistant Secretary's comments, it seems to me that CSO is going to be involved in any planning effort and probably with the country team. Thank you for confirming that. That's a huge uh, and important advancement. Uh, the questions have to do with the statement that um, 50% of interventions or conflicts revert to conflict after seven years. I think it's five years from Kofi Annan, but it doesn't really matter. So the questions are, before we intervene, we the US, is there a methodology? Well, I actually would posit that the reason for that is that we're dis dealing with locally illegitimate actors, and we're trying to get to locally legitimate actors. So before we intervene, is there a methodology within CSO or anywhere at state or the U.S. government for assessing the likelihood of spoiler threats? And the second question is, do we have a, what is the strategy for transitioning from locally illegitimate actors to locally legitimate actors? Are the five principles yeah. in the SAR? Do they accumulate to a strategy for how to do that? I, I don't see how looking yeah. to locally local actors for the solutions to dealing with people who are part of the problem or burden sharing or starting small gets us to a strategy. So and Great. your thoughts on that? Thank you very much. And Doug here in the front. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Doug Olivant with Manton International. Uh, first, a quick aside for you, Rob. Don't try to compete in cultural references with the woman who compared Kandahar and Burning Man. <laughs> um, but uh, very specifically, you, uh, Francis you in particular, but I'd be interested in both, your, both everyone's answers. You compared the, the short-term, long-term trade-offs. So I think it's actually even more complicated than that. You know, having a local temporary peace is not the same thing as having people feel safe enough to return home. It's not the same thing as setting the building blocks for long-term economic development. And definitely is not the same thing as competing for influence with other regional and international powers. So how do you try to do all these things simultaneously uh, when they're in tension? And when do you decide which is more important? Um, I think particularly with your Cold War reference, if we're only looking at this in terms of international competition with regional international powers, that's a very different methodology and set of priorities and approach to the problem than just let's stop the fighting or get refugees home. Great. We'll start with Rob and come down the line. Great. Thank you for the softball. Um, <laughs> so as part of USAID's transformation, which is the most largest uh, redesign structurally that we've done in probably 20 years. We are creating a new bureau that is not the conflict bureau, for that would be bad. It is the conflict prevention and stabilization bureau. Oh, good. Uh, we're taking the bureau of which I am a part, and I see my good friend Mike Hess, who used to head up the Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance Bureau, which is very large. It's about a fifth of, or more of all the money that USAID spends in a year. And because conflict, because humanitarian assistance is always on the front page and is so large, anything you put in with humanitarian assistance gets crowded out of the room. Meaning 
you don't have time to look at it from a senior level. It just never, we've tried, we've tried. I personally tried to do it as acting assistant administrator for, for some time. It's impossible. So we're actually elevating elements of the current DACHA Bureau and creating a new office for conflict and violence prevention by creating a separate bureau, taking the humanitarian assistance, making a bureau over here, and then focusing on conflict prevention and stabilization. How is it different than CSO? Had a wonderful conversation just last week with uh, my boss, Admiral um, Tim Ziemer and Assistant Secretary Natali. She says she's thrilled that finally there's a, there's a bureau that is the place in aid that says, oh, we talk to each other. That's great, now we know. And it is part of the SAR, and I'll let uh, the ambassador answer the State Department question, but the SAR called for identifying one place within each organization of the three that we had, people can say, you're the one to go to, not that you have to do all the work, but we need some place mm -hmm. that it rests policy-wise in the United States here in the Beltway, who do I go to? So we clearly have CSO, and as she's supported by the F Bureau, but CSO is in the lead. The new CPS Bureau will be in the lead at USAID, and then the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy is in the lead at SOLIC over at DOD. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, and for what it's worth, I have not been part of the transformation, but for me, from the former NSC hat, it makes a lot of sense to have one, for lack of a better bureaucratic term, belly button within each I didn't agency. want to use that, but it's... I, I went there. I went there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it just, I, I think bureaucratically, it actually yeah. um, will be much more efficient, so yeah. I, I think that's great. Um, on Mike and Doug sort of were asking two related questions on, on yeah, how do you assess these trade-offs? Um, Mike, you were asking about sort of how do you identify legitimate actors or not, um, which is basically getting at my point on the sort of the trade-offs between stability in the short term versus good governance in the long term. Uh, and Doug, your point is absolutely dead on. It's much more complicated than even that in terms of the, it's not just a sort of a local temporary piece, it's also the conditions that will allow for safe return, conditions that will allow a country to become more inclusive. Um, and I don't have an, an easy pat answer for how we reconcile those, I will say that we within the U.S. government have had, we've been drowning in inputs and informational inputs. Like the problem is actually not do we have enough information mm -hmm. about country X, Y, or Z usually, both open source and, um, and high side materials. So I, I think probably the answer is not we just need more information about these particular mm -hmm. countries. Um, I think the issue is how do we adjudicate these trade-offs within the interagency process. That is why I am a believer for a strong NSC helping to adjudicate some of these thorny trade-offs. There's not going to be, there's not going to be a pat answer for, um, for any of them. But, and I think as the SAR mentions, there's a need to constantly reassess and be honest about the baseline and be, be honest about where we're going from there. Um, but I fully acknowledge it is a hugely heavy lift. <laughs> I will say, as someone from the State Department, I kind of like the part of the SAR that says the State Department has the lead. Um, and uh, working with our colleagues in the NSC to help coordinate would be fine. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that's just my view. Um, I was very reassured by the Assistant Secretary's comment that you know CSO is the belly button for the State Department and has belly button to belly button with uh, USAID. <laughs> Don't go there. Um, but we'll be working very closely with the embassies mm -hmm. and the regional bureaus where a lot of that 
ground truth expertise does reside. In a really perfect world at some point, um, I think a lot more FSOs who have that kind of expertise will want to serve at CSO. CSO is still operating more like a functional bureau and doesn't quite have the connection with the regionals that it, it absolutely needs. And I think the more that that looks like they are working together and drawing expert, complementary expertise, it will work far better for everybody. And the same thing over at USAID where you've got people who know the ground truth. I really want to address the question of dealing with illegitimate actors. Um, there are some that are so far beyond the pale that we absolutely cannot and will not work with them. And I don't think the SAR really you know, is at that stage. I will say that in several countries, governments that I've worked with, um, be very careful to say that the entire government is illegitimate. In some cases, there is the head person is illegitimate. There may be illegitimate elements. But there are often good elements as well. And what we have to do, and this is part of the trade-off or the, the, the realism part, the, the pragmatism, is finding those parties within the governing structure or within the power structure uh, and, and beyond who you can work with and how do you strengthen them. If we wait for purity of partner uh, in, in doing any programs, we are going to have a wonderful stabilization program with the Swedes. Um, we have to understand that we will never have full purity of partner. But we can find legitimate people within those structures that we can work with, that we can strengthen, that we can encourage, and move it forward without necessarily validating the illegitimate. I think we also have to be careful that the person who is illegitimate this week was legitimate last week and maybe legitimate next week. Uh, we are a very inconsistent arbiter of what is legitimate. Um, so we need to be a little bit more humble about that. And to go going back to multilateralism, burden sharing uh, stakeholders, uh, we may have partners who are very, who are more comfortable dealing with these people. So unless the illegitimate is all the way at the extreme of, you know, Saddam Hussein, Deal with who you can on the ground to get processes going, and don't get stuck on purity of partner. It doesn't exist. Right. Well, that uh, dose of pragmatism, I think, is, is well taken, and I uh, really appreciate your time and tremendous insights today to help us move this conversation forward. Um, look forward to engaging with all of you as CSIS continues to do work in this area. Thank you for your time and attention today. Please join me in thanking our terrific panelists. Thank you.